All right. We have reached the end, the end of Romans chapter 8. And uh, the end of Paul's eight-chapter argument. One of the things that we talked about uh, in our very first lesson was the context in which this argument that we're stepping into the very end of it, the conclusion of it, we're talking about that overall argument and what Paul is wrestling with. So I'll kind of restate a little bit of it. Paul's thesis in the book of Romans is Romans 1, 16 to 17, where he states that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, first to the Jew and then to the Greek, for through it the righteousness of God is revealed by faith. Now, one of the things that we said is that if you were to try to step into the mind frame of a Jew in which the Torah was the center of your community. It was like the gravitational pull that everything orbited around. That it promised to you life and blessings for obedience. You grew up memorizing it. You grew up hearing it read every Saturday. And now here comes a preacher saying that the righteousness that God requires comes apart from that nucleus of your life. So how in the world is Paul going to defend this? And we even see at the very beginning of his thesis that he says that this is actually the argument of the Old Testament. He begins to quote the prophets. And so he then goes on and he describes how through chapters 2 and 3, 1, 2, and 3, that all men, Jew and Gentile, are rightly condemned beneath the law. Those who have the law have transgressed it. Those who do not have the law demonstrate their understanding of it, and by that standard, which their heart displays and their actions display, they will be judged and still found lacking. All of us are equally condemned, both Jew and Gentile. But that God's promises in the Old Testament were to justify us the same way that he justified Abraham, in faith, in faith alone. He then goes on to talk about how in chapter 5 that Christ is like a new Adam and by his bloodshed has actually made peace with God on our behalf. He goes on to argue that in the same way that we all became guilty under Adam, all those in Christ become washed clean and free of that same guilt. And even our sin magnifies God's grace to us. And this kicks off chapter 6. One of the things, if you read your New Testament closely, you'll see that there seems to be this accusation against the early church that they are trying to abolish the law. You see Christ and Matthew say things like, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. If anyone tells you to dismiss even a jot or tittle, it'd be better if a millstone was thrown around his neck and he was hung in the sea. We are not getting rid of the law. So what Paul has to defend here is how is it that he is saying you must be saved apart from the law, yet he is not abolishing it. And what he goes on to argue in chapter 6 is that we've been resurrected through Christ and set free from our sinful nature 
which the law, because it's good and we are evil, exposes. Therefore, because it exposes our sinfulness, it cannot provide that which it requires and will only result in condemnation. We must be separated from the law, therefore we can be separated from the old man. And so now we get to chapter 8 where he explains how that happens. How is it that we will not be condemned and the requirements of the law, both the legal requirements that we be punished and the, I guess we could say, present tense requirements that we must be righteous. He's not going to just forgive, but he must forgive and cleanse. What the law requires must actually be present in God's people, namely righteousness. I think we even talked about that the word righteousness is not just the forensic righteousness that we think of, guilty, not guilty, but also the activity of a righteous person and how the law makes that happen. Yeah, there's nothing important up there just yet, but thank you so much for uh, you guys trying to keep this awake. Okay. Um, all right, so now we're at chapter 8, and we're going to resolve this problem. This is the conclusion of Paul's argument. And what we've done so far is we've walked through Romans 8, 1, all the way down to 30. I know you can't see it. It's okay. You can't see it. It's going to be very, and what I said we wanted to do today is we wanted to try to demonstrate what is the overall argument of all of Romans 8 when viewed as one collective statement. In order to do that, we're going to have to apply some of the things that we learned last week about identifying the main point and how certain arguments support main points. So, I'm going to try to zoom out, and I just want you to look at the circles. doesn't matter if you can't see the words. Here is all, oh gosh, that's not helpful. Here is all of Romans 8. And you'll see there's like a big circle here where he's dealing with the topic. There's a big circle here where he's dealing with the topic. And then there's his final conclusion down here. All right? And when I'm arcing a passage, one of the things that I'm looking for is the main points within his overall argument. So let's look at each of those big circles and see if we can make sense of those main points. I'll do my best to try to get them up on the screen. All right. Now, the first one, Romans 8, 1 to 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, supporting statement, because the law of the spirit of life, regeneration, has set you free from that propensity to sin when you were inbound and enslaved underneath the old law. Okay? And then he explains why that is down here. Why is this statement true? Because God, by punishing the Son, sends the Spirit and therefore gets rid of your forensic guilt and makes you actually righteous from the heart just like the Old Testament prophets predicted. And then he talks about how we see that take place in the believer's life, in your life. He says that we don't walk 
according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This new righteousness. What you're going to begin to see in Romans 8 is that one of the things Paul is arguing for is that the age to come is already present in the believer. This eschatological new age of the Spirit. All right, now let me ask a question. If Paul says there's no condemnation because the law of the Spirit of life has set you free, and then gives a long explanation for why that's true, which of those two things is the main idea? The initial statement or the long explanation for why it's true? What's the main idea? The first one, that's right. The main idea is the first one. The second one is supporting it by explaining why it's true. So it's super helpful, super great information. Definitely don't skip it over and throw it out. But it's supporting an overall statement, namely that there's now no condemnation because you are free in the spirit and set free from the law of sin and death. And then he explains how and why that happens through the spirit. All right, this next grouping. He says, so then, or begins it with therefore, we are not in obligation to the flesh because we've been set free from that. Now we're in obligation to the Spirit. Because all who are led by the Spirit, these are the sons and daughters of God, and they will receive an inheritance provided that they suffer with Jesus. So he's got a statement up here. Put to death the deeds of the body. In fact, let me zoom in a little bit further and show you just kind of how, how I'm getting to this. All right. We're not under obligation to live according to the flesh. Because if you're living according to the flesh, you will die. That's the negative statement. What you're not, not under obligation to the flesh. Instead, positively, if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we're not under obligation to the flesh, negative, but positive, we are under the spirit, and it leads us to put to death the deeds of the body. Negative, positive. Negative, positive. All right, so if you have a negative statement, which is a negative way of saying something, and then you state it in positive terms, which one is the main point? I don't hate that guy. I love that guy. What am I saying? I love that guy. You're not, indebted, you're not enslaved to the flesh, but the spirit. And here's what that looks like. If you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. So the positive statement that he's making, his main point, is to put to death the deeds of the body by the spirit. Be led by the spirit. Here's what that activity looks like. Because, what's the motivation for doing it? Everyone who is led by the Spirit. Think of the Israelites in the wilderness. Everyone who is led by the Spirit, these are the children of God, and they will receive an inheritance if they suffer. So the main idea here, we have live by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, because you will receive an inheritance. Main idea, supporting idea. Main idea, supporting idea. Are you seeing that? Again, I'm summarizing entire arguments 
with just a couple representative statements. We're not getting down into the details because all of those details are just supporting something on the, on the top. So the supporting statement are, hey, put to death these deeds because your children now provided you suffering. So that's that group. I promise you'll be able to see the big picture in just a second. And then he says, all right, so what is the motivation for suffering with Christ and, putting to, and being led by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body? What's the motivation for that? The motivation is right here. There's nothing that we go through in this life, in that journey. The deeds of the body being put to death by the leading of the Spirit and suffering with Jesus that can compare with the age to come and the glory within it. That's the motivation that's being given for you to allow the Spirit to lead you to put to death the deeds of the body and to join Jesus in suffering. And he shows how all of creation groans under this and the Spirit, the one who's leading us, causes us to groan and helps us along the way. This idea of continuing to lead us through the desert. He helps us along the way. He intercedes when we don't know how to pray. Helps us in our weakness. This is what the Spirit does. Alright, now my fonts and stuff are messing up. And then the last thing he says is okay. Alright, it's not displaying it. So let me switch over to a new one. Okay, so what should we say to all of this? What should we say to all of this? And then he goes through three main ideas. The first is that if God is for us, no one can stand against us. How do we know God is for us? Because he gave his own son for us. So idea number one, God is for us. The sovereign creator and God of the universe is on our side. This is supposed to be your motivation for suffering. Incomparable glory, the Spirit helps you along the way, and the God of the universe is on your side. Next, it's impossible for you to be condemned because the very judge of the universe died for you. So that's number two, implication. And then number three, no present difficulty or coming difficulty, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. God is on your side, who controls all things. You, it is impossible for you to be condemned. And nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. These are the three implications of everything that Paul has said so far. It's what you want to walk away from. When I read Romans 8, what should I walk away from? I should walk away thinking that I'm a Calvinist and that everything's about the predestination, glorification. No, that's a distraction. That's last week's topic, right? Those doctrines that are not the main point. What Paul wants you to walk away from is these three things. The, the God of the universe is on your side that it's impossible for you to be condemned, which would be terrifying if you're no longer trying to satisfy the law. And nothing can separate you from God's love. Don't, don't interpret your circumstances as anything other than that. 
All right, so here's what we do. I took, is that readable? All right, dang it, you can't see the verses on the side. Um, all right, the first section is where I took the main point of Romans 8, 1 through 11. I'll read it to you in a second. The second section is where I took the main point of Romans 12 through 17. The third section is where I took the main point of Romans 16 through 30. And the last section is where I took the main point of Romans 31 through 39. And I summarized all of those verses according to their main point. So I'm going to throw these up there and then we're going to walk through them so that you can see the entire argument from a big picture. All right, so Romans 8, 11, 1 through 11. Here's what he says. There's no condemnation for the righteous who the Spirit has set free from the flesh on account of the Father's condemnation of the Son. All of Romans 8, 1 through 11, that's the main idea. And we demonstrated that in the arcs that we were doing. Second section, Romans 12 through 17. He says, therefore, that's what he starts his with. Therefore, be led by the Spirit to put to death, put the flesh to death, that thing you've been set free from, and endure suffering as a child who will receive an inheritance. Then the main idea from 18 to 30, because the present groanings and sufferings, during which the Holy Spirit helps us along the way, cannot compare to the glory of the new heavens and new earth, which he uh, and your new life is a foretaste of, therefore, be fearless and full of joy. God will give you all you need. Condemnation is impossible. And absolutely nothing can separate you from God's love in Christ. So, when I'm reading Romans 8, I want my application to be that main idea. He's giving me a long list of things and then saying, what shall we say to this? He's setting himself up for, okay, well then what, what, what should I do? What should I believe? How should I act? How should I live? And he's informing us here. So the main point of Romans 8 is 31 through 39, in which he gives those three realities that he's established throughout chapters 1 through 8. If you were to ask what's the main point of the everything that leads up to that, that that's the implication of, that would be this right here. This imperative, be led by God's spirit to put the flesh to death and to join Christ in suffering. So that's, that's my encouragement to you. And maybe a good question to ask is prior to walking into this growth session, what did you think Romans 8 was about? Let's just, I mean, go ahead, just throw some things out there. When I say Romans 8, probably a chapter that you've read over and over and over and over again. What did you think it was about? What? 
The first verse, no condemnation. Okay, good. No, Josh Foster quoted it to us once. Wish he was here to tell us what he thought. God's love, God's sovereignty. What God wants you to walk away from in Romans 8 is to live according to the Spirit now because you have a foretaste of the coming world and all the difficulties that you experience along the way, he helps you in these three realities. God giving you everything you need because he's on your side, condemnation is impossible, and absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, including whatever trial you're going through. Those are the things he wants you to walk away from. Everything else is just the doctrinal support for why that's true. All right, so that's my summary. That's my main points. And that's how I take each of those smaller arcs, identify what's central in them, and then summarize them, and then try to trace the whole thing through the passage. Um, that obviously didn't take very long. Uh, but that's, that's really all that I have prepared for today. Um, and so I think what I would like to do, other than let some of you guys go back there and maybe finish what you didn't get to for Grace Lunch, is just ask if you have any questions at all. Questions about Romans 8? Questions about Bible arcing? Um, anything? Yes, Blake. Yeah. Are you asking me to read the, the whole thing up there or just the final main point? So, if I were to say what Romans 8 is about, This is the doctrinal reality right here and what he wants you to do. This down here is the implication of that doctrinal reality. So I'll, I'll read those two. Be led by God's spirit to put the flesh to death and to endure suffering as a child who will receive an inheritance. Be fearless and full of joy. God will give you all you need. Condemnation is impossible. And absolutely nothing that you endure can separate you from God's love in Christ. That's the summary. What else? All right, so I'm going to give you guys an encouragement, and then I'll just dismiss, unless you come up with something. What should you do if you were in and out of this, or you're like, oh, wow, that's super helpful, and I still feel just as helpless to do this as I did when we started however many, two months ago. Um, let me show you. BibleArt.com, their courses are some of the most worshipful things that I've ever participated in. And they're really good. And they're free, unless you want to pay 40 bucks a month for instructor feedback, which is also really good. So they have all these over here. Paraphrase, how to paraphrase a passage, how to interpret a passage, how to phrase a passage, how to bracket, how to arc, how to teach. 
the didactics one was uh, a big motivator for what I did. And then they've got ones like Arcing Through the Psalms where they actually apply those things to uh, different book studies. You can learn Greek. You can learn Hebrew. Um, it's, uh, it's just, it's really, really, really well done. Really, really well done. And a lot more thorough, a lot slower pace. And you can pay for the feedback from the instructors. It's just excellent. It really, really is. Um, I, I ref, uh, referenced much of their stuff while I was preparing this to make sure that I was teaching it the same way that people have been teaching it for 15, 20 years or teach it, so that it's at least a little bit helpful. But if you want to go back through it, I strongly recommend it. This, this method, I, I don't teach without doing this. I do this because I want to make sure that what I'm representing is not just the point that stood out to me most or stirred my heart most, but is actually the main point supported right by the rest of the argumentation of the passage. So, all right, guys. Um, I'll look to Jordan. Do you have anything else you'd like to use the time for? I got some things. Okay. Okay. What time does that clock say? 40? 42. Okay. So in less than three minutes or less, I'm going to ask a Romans 8 question, and then I'm going to make a, uh, I'm going to commandeer this moment spontaneously for something else. Um, Romans 8 question. Lloyd-Jones. Piper, John Stott, these are some heavy hitters, right? They know their Bible, they love Jesus, they study, they, they can read Greek backwards. Smart guys conspire to say Romans 8 is about no condemnation, no separation, so live free in the Spirit. Do you agree? Yes. Can I see that and really feel like I love Jesus more because it tells me to be conformed to the image of Christ without ever arcing the passage. Yeah, I, um, one of the things I was thinking about is uh, the Grasping God's Word book. Some of the things that they were encouraging and wanting to apply. Um, like for example, when we think about Romans 8, especially if you you were converted during the Young, Restless, and Reformed movement. You think about how it defends all the doctrines that you were in the cage about. Uh, all the Calvinism and sovereignty and Romans 9 even. That's probably how you feel about it. Just a quick inclusion. Romans 9 through 11 is not about predestination and election. That's a supporting argument for something else. Um, but if I were to stand back and... Wait. So Romans 9 through 11 asks one fundamental question. So the first question that Paul answers for eight chapters is, how is it that God justifies us and demonstrates his righteousness apart from the law? He spends eight, question, or eight chapters answering that. Romans 9 begins with a very simple question that his audience may be tempted to ask. Blake and I got the privilege of arcing Romans 9 through 11 in a Greek course together. Um, and it's essentially this right here. Six. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. And this is what it's asking. 
if God made all of these promises to Old Testament Israel, descendants of Abraham according to the flesh, and your gospel is true, and then they reject it, doesn't that mean that God's promises have failed? That's what he's answering through all of Romans 9, 10, and 11. And it'll change the way that you view some of your favorite verses. I'll give you another example. For um, someone believes with their, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. For one believes with their, was it their mouth, and then they confess in their heart and they obey. In the context of the argument, what he's actually saying is not a declaration of how easy it is to be saved. He's making a declaration that they have no excuse not to be saved because the gospel was there the whole time in the book of Deuteronomy. The message of the heart and the mouth is a direct quotation of Deuteronomy where he talks about how the word of God is near to them. It's in their mouth, it's in their heart, and therefore they have no excuse not to be saved. So God hasn't abandoned them, they've abandoned God. And he has therefore turned to the Gentiles. But once the age of the Gentiles is over and the gospel has gone out and reached us Gentiles, the end result will be that God will remove the hardening from Israel so that all of us equally can say, in my hardness, God showed mercy. And that all things, all salvation will be from him, through him, and to him so that he alone is glorified in the end. The sovereignty of Romans 9, that's what he's talking about, is how God hasn't lost control of salvation after making all those promises to Abraham. That wasn't what you asked. Amen. That was great. Thank you, brother. Um, a year ago, this is my commandeer of the last moment, a year ago, and I think quite obviously we can now see this, I asked Derek to teach six parts on arcing Romans 8. For the last year, this brother has been locked away in some cave preparing this. Um, we have been served so well by a brother who I think, Captain Obvious, has a gift for teaching. Clearly. But he also commandeers that gift in a lot of prayer, a lot of agony, a lot of wrestling, so that it pops out on a screen a year later in an organized fashion and it shows up on church center in innumerable posts with graphics attached in the comments so that we can walk along with him uh, so thank you for all your labors thank you for your help uh, i realized last week put this in a long line of many other similar examples i missed the point of the passage i preached in the gospel of john I also, you probably listened to the Piper Dever Nine Marks or whatever church pastor taught podcast where Piper demonstrated that the main point of a passage in Romans 12 was actually not what you should preach as the main point of your sermon because it actually supports a, a, another bigger idea. So you can get the main point of a passage and preach something else as the main point of a sermon that's true. So there's a lot of complexity. But I don't want that to be lost in the, I hope, I hope, because last week I was convinced I got it wrong in the Gospel of John. Please forgive me. Thank you, Jesus. This is something you can do, with or without bubbles and arcs and lines and drawings, with a Bible and a heart full of prayer and a pencil and an eraser, 
and just talking to yourself and talking to the Bible and talking to God. So, brother, thank you so much. Last thing I'm going to say, it's going to show up in our service here, <laughs> here in just a minute. This is both the McClarty and the Occlums last Sunday with us. Uh, they'll still be members until we congregationally decide that you can be released from our membership, at which time you are engrafted into another Bible preaching church. Until then, you're ours. You can't get rid of us. Even then, you can't get rid of us. But I want to say to you, to you, this church loves you so much. Uh, couldn't be a better day for a grace lunch to be able to love on each other and uh, have a love feast together. But I just wanted to say, on behalf of us all, thank you so much for serving us so well over these last six lessons. Thank you, brother, so much. Amen to that? Yeah, let's pray. Lord, thank you for brothers uh, in the body like Derek who love you, love your word, love us, and um, teach not only with precision, but with a lot of grace and humility. Uh, for those of us that feel like we, we're so slow uh, in our own teachability and ability to, to learn, thank you, God, for giving us more tools in the bag to be able to know you better according to your word. So my prayer is Jesus' prayer for this church. Sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. Do that for us, for your glory. And uh, thank you for this brother serving us in these wonderful ways. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, our service begins at 10. Whatever time that clock says, you have that much time.